Welcome back to episode 14 of The Arbitration Station. Season 2, episode 14, as Joel likes to correct me. How are you doing, Joel? You beat beat me to it, Brian. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm a quick learner. I, 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 I'm not as good as if I uh, had been given the opportunity to correct you, because that's when I'm at my best, in my best mood. <laughs> well, it's sunny outside in Stockholm. I'm in Stockholm at our offices on a Saturday. And where are you? Uh, I'm in my home in Copenhagen. I just submitted the um, two dissertation manuscripts. So I, my head has been elsewhere for a few days, and now I'm finally off after working a lot in the last couple of days. What does so that mean when I'm you after... submit a manuscript? It, it, it differs, I think, from, from university to university. Basically, what happens now in my case is that I have sort of an informal dress rehearsal for my defense, which is the formal big thing later this year, hopefully, if everything goes well. So I've asked Stefan Schill, this German professor that I mentioned the other time, to come to Uppsala in, in the beginning of June and to have a seminar with me and a few other scholars and practitioners in the room and basically, you know, read what I have so far and give me a lot of uh, critique that I can then incorporate and get into the final manuscript. So I, I've been trying to, uh, you know, whip what I have into readable, decent shape for, for Stefan so that he can read it and then come back to me with hopefully a lot of criticism. Is it a uh, public and free seminar you're going, you're going to hold? Yes, always, of course. And I expect you to be there, by the way, if I haven't already. I will be there, but I expect all of our listeners to fly in to Uppsala on the declared date and just pack the room and instill right. shame. June on you. 4th, Monday, <laughs> uh, between 5 and 7 in the, in the evening, uh, if, you, if you happen to be passing by the northern Stockholm region and have an interest in commercial and treaty-based arbitration, please feel free <laughs> to come and watch me being uh, slaughtered by Stefan Schill's intellect. Uh, I would watch that weekly. It's It should be outlawed like the Spanish toreros. <laughs> okay. So I am the bull in this. Yeah, of analogy. course. And oh, yeah. he's sticking sabers in your neck. Intellectual okay. ones. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> anyway. So it is our last episode where we broadcast from Sydney. It has been a long run, but I think it was well worth it. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. Um, don't forget to keep sending us feedback at um, thearbitrationstation at gmail.com or tweet at us at the ARP station. Um, we have two, uh, we have two, not practical, well, mixed bag, but we have two book reviews, basically. <laughs> Um, we have Camel McLaughlin and Matthew Weininger, who wrote the International Investment Arbitration basically handbook. It's called Substantive Principles, and it's their second edition. So we talked to them about what has changed between their first edition and second edition. Um, they have a third author, Lawrence Shore, um, who we, we did not interview, who was not at Sydney, but who should also deserves a mention on the podcast. Oh, good of you to to remember that. That's good. Yes. I think we mentioned his name somewhere in the interview as well, if I recall correctly. Right. And then we also talked to Catherine Rogers, but that you're you're actually not right because I don't think we talked that much about her 
upcoming book on ethics and international arbitration, which is also a second edition, by the way. I think the first one is from 2014 or something. Exactly. And she is still working on the second edition, and I know she'll she'll be thrilled when we mention that, just to put some extra pressure on her, because <laughs> she's already working to, to get it finalized. But that's not what we talk to her about primarily, but we talk about a related thing, which is her brain child really uh, her baby uh, arbitrator intelligence this uh, initiative to gather feedback from various users of arbitration about arbitrators and publish that in a transparent and public manner which is very very interesting and it basically she's been working on this for a long time and they are very close to actually um, publishing and you know uh, follow through with with all this uh, research that they've been doing for many many years. So if if this happens the way I think she envisions and that we all hope it, it it will happen, it has the potential of really revolutionizing the way we look at arbitrator appointments and arbitrator performance for for the eternal future. I mean, we it's talked about so often at conferences this topic about whether we should have a list and whether we should have this be a more transparent system. And I kind of came into the interview thinking it was going to be just kind of the the same old rhetoric. But the amount of scientific and statistical research that she has done has really like created such a magnificent product um, that it's I think it's an incredibly initiative actually. And yes. and I mean, of course, she's and she is as as will be evident during the interview. She's a uh, professional she's been doing this particular project for such a long time that she's thought of everything and it's it's easy i think and maybe that shines through a little bit in our questions to be instinctively a little bit skeptical but uh, she she really addresses most concerns you can have with this type of project because i think in in the business when you talk to senior arbitrators they are all you know endorsing this project in theory and then they say that uh, practically speaking it's not going to work out um, but it right. seems it will, and let's hope it does. And well, I think it also takes, it takes the user buy-in, and I think that's also a call to everyone who's listening that if you're involved in some sort of institution or anything that could maybe contribute to this practice and this project, I think she would really appreciate it. And after the Catherine discussion, it's back to happy fun time. Do you remember when this podcast used to be just you and I shooting shit and not very senior? Yeah. It's almost like we had figures. a white month. Yeah. <laughs> no beers for us. Exactly. But now we're finally back to our uh, original concept with Happy Fun Time. And of course, the the final two or three episodes of this season will most likely be more true to the original format of two ignorant young lawyers trying to figure things out rather than senior established people who already have figured things out sharing their knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, and we're talking about business development. <laughs> you say that as if that's something we're all supposed to know about. Exactly. I I mean, I get asked this, especially when you come become a senior associate, you're expected to take a more active role in business development in the firm. And then you ask yourself, wait, what does that mean? And then when you start figuring it out, and then you realize how amorphous of an idea it is to contribute to business development there's so many things that you can do and i think we are going to talk about or we are going to talk about you um, are going to talk about i will talk about and you're going to analyze what people do for business development and whether you think it actually bears law firm law firm business development is, is that the uh, a reasonable preface to to the topic yes i i mean i think it could extend to institutions maybe not you know individual phds but uh i think 
any <laughs> any sort of organization within arbitration. Okay, okay that, I'm looking forward to this. I have a few questions based off of my own ignorance, which is usually a good setup for for concept. <laughs> I hope that's not the lead-in of your seminar in June fourth. It is, though, to a certain extent, because I really, truly believe that that uh, scholarship should be a conversation. And it's always good if there's some sort of a symmetry in, in knowledge, although, of course, the best always happens when you have a lot of informed and smart people who know the, the topic of conversation. Absolutely. Let's start with Campbell McLaughlin and Matthew Weininger. So we are seated here today at ICA Sydney, and we have two very interesting guests with us today. We have Campbell McLaughlin and Matthew Weininger, who have put out a second edition of a very interesting book, which Joel and I have already mentioned to you guys. We have relied on the first one very heavily, so we're very interested to talk about number two. Uh, sometimes the sequel's not always as good, but I think this might be the exception to that rule. Uh, can you guys let us know what has happened? I mean, it's been quite some time since the first edition, so... A, what, why the amount of time, I know it takes a long time to write a book, but why the amount of time and what has happened since uh, the first edition? So I guess we wrote the first edition, we were virtually babes in the wood in this field in the sense that it was a, still in 2007, I felt like a comparatively young field. There was in, in fact at the time, believe it or not, no general uh, treatise on the subject. Uh, so. Um, Matthew and I spotted this as an area that was worthy of investigation. Uh, but really in 10 years, uh, the field has grown up. And uh, this was an opportunity for us to take stock, not only in terms of looking at all the more recent developments in case law and, and, and treaty framing, uh, but also, I guess, to reflect a little bit on the, ex the experience, academic and professional, that we've both had in that time and try and bring some of those insights to bear uh, on the field as well. I remember when I was advising on cases in the 1990s thinking, it's so hard to find material, I wish somebody would write a book, and that's why I, I had the impetus to do this. <laughs> but once we were doing the second edition, everyone had or written an article, and every lawyer you would meet had done a treaty case. So the, the knowledge of everybody else in the field had, had grown, and, and, uh, and as well as the number of materials that we had to go through. I think it's reflected very well. I'm mean, just looking at the book as you brought it, Campbell. It's uh, the way I remember it from the first edition. The second now is significantly thicker, no? <laughs> well, there's a slight element of smoke and mirrors there because <laughs> we were very keen to make sure that it didn't, uh, that you could still hold it in, the ha in your hand because one of the things that people said to us about the book was that it was very useful to have uh, a single volume text that covered the whole of the substantive principles applicable in investment treaty law. Uh, but to uh, the more expert eye, of which you're obviously one, uh, the typeface is slightly smaller and the margins are also slightly thinner. But we did, we made a real effort actually to uh, uh, try and maintain what we were told was something that was appreciated, which was uh, a reasonably concise uh, style. Um, so you can see the wood for the trees. There were more appendices in the first edition because in the intervening time somebody had invented the internet and if you want to get, for example, the Sri Lankan model treaty, you don't need to go to the back end of a book to find it. Right. <laughs> Wise move probably to take it out and replace it with more substantive text instead. 
But when you're reviewing 10 years of practice and case law and uh, experience, is it just a bunch of empirical evidence and studies? Or how is how have you structured this to, you know, to explain this development? May I add on as a junior aspiring academic, do you keep a team doing this? Because I would imagine there's a lot of groundwork to cover, not, not only the six months prior to writing, but also during uh, these 10 years. Well, just, just to answer the second question first, we, we certainly had assistance from, from research assistants, and we, we had some wonderful research assistants to find the material for us, but one of the things which we definitely hung on to from, uh, in, in, through both editions was that we would do the actual writing ourselves. And, and one of the things that I think is so important in this area uh, is there's actually a general reluctance of people to actually say what they think. Uh, about uh, the content of investment law, and you can imagine all of the the pressures uh, for people who are actually involved in the process in, in doing that. But we we think if you honestly express your view based on uh, assessment of the material, one should do that. So that's very much a personal uh, was very much a personal project. That was a reflection of the market at the time when we started writing it. There are, there are some books that no one will remember now that were produced by people working in major law firms and it was obvious that they'd brought in a bunch of um, interns for whom English was not necessarily, in, uh, not just not the first language, not even a particularly fluent and proficient language and I wanted a book that would be um, able to, you could hold your head up high and that was your work, that was your best work and that was the, that was the guiding principle. In, in terms of, oh sorry, you were. No, I was just going to say, but in answer to your other question, um, I think the interesting thing about this project, and in a way refreshing thing for me, since I do also on occasion sit as an arbitrator, is there's a lot of debate uh, in the field about the failure to achieve a jurisprudence constant on many issues and the lack of concordance amongst arbitral tribunals. And when you're involved in sitting in particular cases, you inevitably get only narrow slices of the field because there are only particular issues that are being pleaded before you. The wonderful thing about this project was that it was an opportunity to stand back and actually look at the whole field. And, you know, the news is not all bad because what, what you, we've found is that, sure, there are uh, outlier and maybe even occasional aberrant awards, but the general trend uh, is a convergent trend on most issues. Uh, and what this was uh, uh, an opportunity to do, which really was what we had in mind with the first edition as well, but we perhaps have hopefully pulled it off a bit better the second time around, was to take all of that stuff and actually work out from it what the common principles are that actually give some real content to these, after all, otherwise very um, broadly uh, framed standards. And the structure of the book is, is obvious, really, because you take a, we took a treaty. I mean, these are the first-generation treaties when we started. We start with a preamble and, and, ends with, uh, and ends where it ends. And each chapter basically follows the provisions. It starts with the preamble, then the definitions, and then the substantive treatment, and then, the, and, 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 and then followed by um, compensation. Have you had That's to med- make any limitations or compromises because it, it would it sounds like that would still especially in 2018 entail a lot of a lot of material are there any particular provisions that you felt were less relevant or you had to make uh, kill your darlings a little bit in order to make it comprehensible well what we, we, we we've always made a distinction between the substantive provisions and procedural law and um, of course procedure is really important but 
Um, there is there is other there are other books on that subject, and uh, we we felt the real focus of our book, where we could make the contribution, was on the um, uh, on substantive provisions of the treaty. I guess focusing, as Matthew says, on using the treaty as a structure um, uh, gives a sort of built-in limitation in the sense that what we're really interested in is trying to shed out light on what these treaties mean. We all know now that there are other issues that can be raised in investment cases that are outside the framework of a treaty, and the book doesn't focus on those to the same extent. Plus, what we haven't done is engage in any um, deep way with the whole uh, critique of investment treaty arbitration. I, our, what we say in the forward is, well, maybe our contribution is to actually explain what the uh, substantive law is and uh, that those who are critics, uh, as much as those who have to apply, need to actually know uh, what the substance of the uh, legal area is that they're, they're criticising. Uh, so that's that's what we've we've tried to do. We've, in other words, stuck to our knitting, I suppose. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll not, oh, sorry, Matthew. Well, there's one area where the modern trends does come in, and which is quite interesting that it's that is the area if in the dispute resolution provisions, mm. because that has changed the way that treaties are drafted nowadays has changed since the first generation quite in, in quite a major way. So things like transparency. Um, which is obviously a response to critics, is now baked into the wording of the of the new generation of treaters. Mm. If you look at CETA or the TPP wording. Yeah, arguably some of the substantive provisions have also uh, been developed if you look at the way the FET standard looks like in, in CETA, for example. Is that something that you reflected in the new edition or are you still focusing primarily on, on, on jurisprudence and the way treats have been, been interpreted? No, one of the things that we really have tried to do is marry treaty drafting practice with the jurisprudence and so we took a positive decision to include all the the, the, the major examples of new generation treaties uh, including uh, taking for example the decision to include the TPP at a point where we didn't know whether it was going to become a reality and then of course it wasn't a reality and now it's a reality again, but in slightly different guise. That's but, a problem of writing for ten years. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 the the effect of that is that um, you can trace through what's actually happened as states have reacted to their experience with uh, the arbitra arbitration process uh, in uh, revising the treaty drafting, and which is a very interesting story in itself, as they've tried to achieve greater greater level of um, precision and deal with some of the. Um, say abuses, but certainly uh, some of the ways in which treaty, the treaties, the early generation of treaties were used in ways that may not have been fully anticipated. Did you notice when you were going through some of these substantive protections that there was some jurisprudence constant that was maybe headed in the wrong direction or something that you said, oh, there's some bad habits here? Um, Joel and I wrote an article about the stay of enforcement and there was jurisprudence constant about whether the continued stay of enforcement should be automatic or not. Mm. And that was not... that. I mean, it wasn't very good at jurisprudence constant. So I wonder if you came across something similar where you're like, tribunals are not headed in the right direction. I, I, I don't know about not headed in the right direction. I think, I think one thing one has to recognize here is that um, the whole field is connected to a much longer and older tradition in terms of um, protection of rights of aliens and one of the things we've tried constantly to do in the book is to explore those connections and to show that this isn't just something that's kind of 
jumped out uh, fully, fully formed in the last 20 years, but actually has been a long-standing preoccupation of international law. On the other hand, the um, asymmetrical character of investment treaty arbitration raises a bunch of issues in a new way that we haven't, we haven't seen before. And there are certainly instances, I think, of uh, cases where uh, tribunals, when confronted with new problems, uh, maybe have gone back and adopted models which aren't really still relevant. Right. Um, uh, so, and uh, th there's a lot of room for imaginative, more imaginative work, I think. And another area which continues to be really important, and uh, which is why I'm, I'm very glad that ICA has also been focusing on this is, is the whole question that Matthew writes about in the book on, on compensation. Um, the damages theory, or the absence of, of damages theory, <laughs> and causation, and, and causation. Investment treaty law raises those questions in a very acute and often unexpected ways. Uh, and of course, as far as the litigating parties are concerned, um, that, that's really where the rubber hits the road. It's interesting how the cases have developed on compensation because when we did the first edition, compensation would be a few paragraphs, even though the numbers would be quite high. And it's as if the, the community of people watching tribunals gave the arbitrators a rap on the knuckles and said, guys, you've got to do work harder on this. And some of the compensation awards are very sophisticated nowadays and they really go to sometimes more than 100 pages. But this is the money is what it's all about. That's why the investors are bringing the case and they deserve for the questions of compensation and indeed interest to be properly reasoned. Is there an area where you would say there is room for improvement in treaty drafting to be more specific with respect to standards for compensation or is it sufficient to re rely on or hope that arbitrators and parties will be well versed enough to figure it out on their own? Well, that's a, that's a, it's one of the interesting policy questions because there's enough within the current treaty drafting for arbitrators to conduct an extremely sophisticated analysis. But if you think that arbitrators should be prevented from having a free reign, um, then you need to put more, more standards into the treaty itself. Mm. The, the, there is a question mark about how effective that attempt to um, write in more detail into treaties uh, really is. Even with a very forward-looking treaty like CETA, you have there a set of provisions on fair and equitable treatment which look like an attempt to codify, but, but actually it's just, I would say, spelling out what is inherently there in any event, and it only gives the impression of, an, of a narrower uh, standard. Um, really, at the end of the day, these, these, the, the, one can't get away from the fact that investment treaty arbitration, because it's concerned with the um, control of abuse of governmental power at the end of the day, it, it is concerned with inherently difficult and political questions and there's only a limit to the extent to which states can um, uh, predefine the context in which those are going to come up. It's the same in tort law, isn't it? You know, the, in right. the French civil code, the whole of tort law is, is a single three-line article uh, upon which has been built a huge jurisprudence and it's a little bit the same uh, here. That said, there are certainly areas where treaty practice can make an important difference. Um, one is control of abuses of, of, the, of nationality, for example, and the um, use of denial of benefit clauses and that kind of uh, thing. Uh, states are entitled to determine for themselves who, who is entitled to access uh, the benefits of treaties that they, they include. 
on, on the more practical side, working on the book, and we should perhaps recognize that there is also a third co-author who is, who is not in the room. We certainly should, and uh, Larry, wherever you are. Recognize and appreciate. <laughs> How do you work together practically with such a major project that takes a long time and you're located in different jurisdictions? And Do you send drafts back and forth or have you done sort of a, a, a clear division and then you review it? Because from the first version, as I remember, you can't really tell for sure who's written what. It seems like you've worked hard on success. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, of course, we, 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 we have now, I guess, decades long uh, of understanding and cooperation since we, when we first met, we were all not just in the same firm, but in the same practice group. In, in the on same the same firm. floor. Um, oh, wow. So we already had a very intuitive understanding of each other and, um, and uh, a common love of the English language, I guess. Um, so, but the actual, in the writing process, we, we sure we divided up um, initial responsibility uh, for chapters on a roughly equal basis. Um, but then uh, we all read and reviewed each other's uh, drafts. And then we also very, worked very hard to kind of define in advance, you know, boring but important things of, about citation and that kind of thing, so as to get a, a, as consistent as possible in a, an approach. Um, but we, I'm pleased to say, we've never, we've never had, we've never had any uh, substantive disagreements on uh, the views we've come to. And uh, the only really challenging thing with the second edition was, I guess, coordinating our respective um, schedules uh, so that we were all ready at the same time. Um, in the end, you just have to finally fix on a date and say, "Come hell or high water, it's going to be done." And fortunately, that was last year. Yeah. No substantive disagreements, you say. Does that imply that you've had style <laughs> disagreements, <laughs> fights over that color, that color brown? But, uh, Oxford commas have been uh, violent discussions. I, I think it's fair to say, out of the three of us, when it comes to questions of style and presentation, Campbell is much more interested in those. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one. There's always one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, and uh, and the publishers, fortunately, have gone, gone with us. We we. Um, we, we wanted to make the book as useful as, as possible, so this time we've integrated it with the Oxford um, Investment Claims database, so you've got all of those um, citations. If you have the book electronically, you can, you can use it to hyperlink. Um, but, but in many ways, we, you know, this, we're fortunate to be the first book in the, in the series, which I'm really delighted has progressed to be quite a major series now of monographs. Um, but we sort of felt as though we were meant to be the standard bearer. We should set a certain standard in terms of the way the thing uh, looked and was organised. And, um, you know, there is a big issue, I guess, about um, why people still buy and read books on these sort of subjects in the, in the internet age. Um, I guess, uh, as authors, we're obviously we have a vested interest in this, but my view is that actually... The internet's a fabulous tool, but we're now, all of us, crushed under the tyranny of almost too much material. Right. And yet in this field, this is a field where uh, what's really in short supply is uh, crunching all of that stuff into a format that is intelligible and, and useful. Um, and so I still think there's a, a real role for the um, intelligent treatise, um, of course, whether the market thinks that we'll have, we'll have to see. But, uh, <laughs> but is that why 10 years was a deliberate choice? If, if it was a deliberate choice, was that you could kind of become the digest of all of this information? Um, 
it wasn't a I wouldn't be a lie to say yeah. it was a deliberate <laughs> choice. I'm sure the pub our publishers would have preferred uh, a five year had, had six years or or so rather than ten. But but um, speaking for myself, apart from the fact that various other writing uh, opportunities came up in the meantime, I think there was in hindsight a real benefit of ten years because in that ten years. That's, that's the 10 years in which this field has grown up and, and then also become controversial. So it was a, an opportunity to really take stock. And if we'd done that mid, in midstream, I'm, I think it would have been a very different book and probably uh, less, less, a less useful book, I don't right. know you think, Matthew. Yeah, I did, the 10 years was, was in no way deliberate, but actually there is an advantage to it now. Hmm. You indicated earlier, Campbell, that you uh, enjoy also writing what you think. <laughs> Uh, which I think is uh, is uh, welcome in many arbitration conferences and also writings, uh, especially, if I might say so, and we, we talk about this on the podcast a lot, and I blame Brian uh, for the collective failures of the practitioner community. I think, I think it's usually <laughs> practitioners, of course, which you also hinted at, Matthew. Initially. <laughs> so against that background, is there anything you say in the book that you think is going to be met with, uh, with some uh, debate or resistance from other people in the community, or is it primarily a taking stock of practice and gathering and systematizing material? Uh, it's much more than that because we, 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 we deliberately come to what I hope are considered and balanced opinions on uh, really every issue. Um, and, so, and you can't simply digest because, because there are issues on which there are, con there are contested views in the, um, in the jurisprudence. And our approach is, well, Let's evaluate those arguments and and express a express a view on them. Uh, uh, and if you want to see about see what I say about uh, MFM clauses in relation to jurisdiction, buy a copy of the second edition. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the cases they're either right or they're not. So if they're right, we write about them approvingly, and if they're wrong, we write about them disapprovingly. Uh, as a practitioner, I don't find that causes any problem in practice. First of all, there's enough lawyers out there making rubbish cases, and I don't necessarily want to be one of those. But the, on the really key issue, has there been a breach of a treaty standard FET or expropriation? It's not actually the law that drives the answer to that. It's um, assimilating all the facts. So there's a. I have had hearings where people have tried to use the book against me. Really? I think it's a bit of a cheap point. <laughs> and hopefully it's been seen like that. But it doesn't restrict you in practice because the really key questions... Um, there isn't an answer in the book. It's about assimilating the facts to the law. Mm. Great. Well, I think we are about to to wrap up and thank you. But before that, I want to ask a completely off-topic question to, to Campbell. What is up with all the Kiwis in international arbitration? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Everywhere. It's Exported. a pretty small country, <laughs> far away from most things. And yeah, it's a disproportionate uh, amount of yeah, people from New Zealand. So exactly. We produce wool, dairy products and arbitrators. <laughs> Sheep. Uh, <laughs> and most of them, who are, all of my, my dear friends, unfortunately many of them are exports. Yeah. Uh, uh, and not so many, such as myself and David Williams, have done this from, uh, from a home base. Um, I don't know, we're a small country far away, but it, we, it's deeply rooted in our DNA that we are dependent upon international trade and also uh, we are, we're a strong believer in the international rule of law um, and particip participation and the benefits for small states of participating in, in, in the international legal system. So I guess everybody's a product of their background, but that, that's, that's, uh, that was certainly a major influence. Um, 
on on me in in the career choices that I've made. Great, good answer. You, I guess you've heard the question yeah, before. Yeah, that was well thought <laughs> The book is is called International Investment Arbitration Substantive Principles, published by Oxford University Press uh, a year ago. Yes. Yes. Very good. Thank you so much for for talking to us. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You have been working on, I saw somewhere, maybe in something you wrote yourself, that you, that you launched this a long time ago. Arbitrary intelligence is a long time coming, like a decade uh, plus. Yeah, a really long time. So I first wrote an article. This this project comes out of my work on uh, arbitrator ethics. Right? And that was the approach I took. And I wrote an article about now about 14 years ago on what we might call the market for arbitrator services. And I said this is you know an incredibly opaque market. Uh, and it has, is characterized by big information asymmetries and high barriers to entry. Uh, so if you say those words to an economist, they say, well, that's an incredibly dysfunctional market, right? <laughs> and a dysfunctional market for this incredibly important moment in the case, right, for selecting your arbitrator. Uh, so I wrote that article at 12 years ago. I started trying to do, uh, put something together like this. I had a terrible name before. Uh, and uh, What was that? It was like the <laughs> International Arbitrator Information Project or something like that. It <laughs> real, oh, really <laughs> exciting, huh? a nice acronym. But, uh, but, um, but I started working on it, and I had a law firm tell me to my face, uh, we hope your project fails because this is the kind of information we sell to our clients, and we don't want the competition. As it turns out, though, clients don't really like that answer so much, you know. Uh, but clients love this project um, because it will uh, increase the predictability in in appointing arbiters. And the other reason in-house counsel really like this is uh, for a couple reasons. One, it gives them an opportunity, instead of just outsourcing arbitrator selection and having to rely on the opinions of your outside counsel, they can participate more actively in assessing arbitrators um, based on information that they know equal to their to their outside counsel. Um, the other reason, and I think this is not to be lost at all, is you know in every other part of some client's business, you know when they make big decisions, they have analytics to explain it to the board. Uh, if something goes wrong, and you know there are plenty of instances, you know every law firm's had this experience where they appoint someone they think is the absolute perfect arbitrator based on their telephone research. Uh, and then something goes wrong, a very unexpected outcome, and they have to explain to their client. And then their client has to go back to the board of directors and explain, oh yes, well, from the five phone calls we did, we thought this was really the right person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much better for them if they can say, look, here's the empirical research we had put into this. Uh, and it looks like the same kind of decision-making strategy that you make for other critically important decisions in a business. So that's part of why clients really like this. Um, yeah, put that way, it's actually striking, come to think of it, how unsophisticated the arbitrator appointment procedure is. It's, it's like, crazy. Basically, we took our law firm's word for it because they know, they know this person, like it's 1825. Yeah. Well, one of the things I say is that we are a technology upgrade for this, for this moment. The technology currently being used is primarily 19th century technology, the telephone. Uh, and, you know, if you want to understand how, how crazy that is, you need a couple of touchstones. So one... It's hard to know exactly, but I think a reasonable estimate is we're getting to about 10,000 cases a year and several thousand arbitrators. And the idea that that information can be effectively exchanged on an ad hoc person-to-person basis by telephone is insane, Uh, number one. Uh, Number two, if you compare to what's happening, for example, in litigation settings, 
So in the United States, there are all sorts of you know increasing number of businesses that you get assigned a judge, and the first thing you do is you know get a detailed report about every case the judge has ever sat in, about how their cases were handled on appeal, about uh, you know various different sources in this very nice analytics package. Well, you don't get to choose your judge. You know that's the work you want just to know how to structure your strategy to appear before the judge. Now, if you get to choose that judge. I mean, that's crazy that we don't even try to do something similar to that. And then, and I think this is the other way it'll be really useful, this information we're developing, is, uh, you know, you might spend a lot of time researching the party-appointed arbitrator you are going to appoint. But the reality is, it's a three-person tribunal. And your chances of being able to efficiently and effectively research the other two arbitrators is much lower, generally, right? Because uh, the other side, it could be a different region, you know, where your firm doesn't practice, or, uh, you know, it, especially outside of the largest cases. Um, you know, the chances and the increasing chances of the pool grows, there's going to be someone you don't know uh, is increasing. And you're not going to want to spend, as you're getting ready for that case in that sensitive time frame, time researching, you know, the other side's arbitrators. Um, and so we think this will be really useful um, to be able to do, you know, what you might call opposition research on the other arbitrator, and also to know the chair if it gets appointed by an institution. Um, so, so we think for, for law firms, uh, it's, it's a sort of a short-term, uh, narrow-minded view to say we don't want to share our information because we lose something, because I think what you have to gain is much bigger. Um, and we're going to be creating, we're working on financial incentives to um, Yeah, how do you go about that? <laughs> that Practically, uh, I would imagine that uh, at least uh, in terms of lip service, most law firms now would embrace this in, in theory, maybe unlike 10, 12 years ago when you pitched it first. Do you gather the intel primarily from law firms? And if so, how? <laughs> Practically yeah. speaking, it's got to be a challenge. Yeah, so, so our primary means uh, to our end, first of all, let me say we're a nonprofit. Um, so, and, we're, and I think that's important because it ensures us independence. Um, you know, we will be selling the report, so it'll be a revenue-generating enterprise. We're doing that with Kluwer, but we're nonprofit. And I think that's really important because our mission statement is to promote transparency, accountability, and diversity. And since we're a nonprofit, we don't have to commit to a profit motive, we can, we can commit to our mission statement. Um, in terms of our, our tool for getting this information is what we call the Arbitrator Intelligence Questionnaire, or AIQ. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, much better name than that earlier acronym, yeah, right? <laughs> so, I have to say, though, as a non-native speaker, intelligence is one of those confusing words in the English language because there's... It, 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 does have, it is a false friend for some jurisdictions, for some languages. Exactly, exactly. So it, it's not uh, whether or not arbitrators are intelligent that you're looking at. It's, it's Well, you may find that out in the report. I was going to say, it does, <laughs> but it has multiple connotations, which is part of why I kind of like it. Uh, it is a little bit, you know, True. sort of trying to evaluate the intelligence of arbitrators, give intelligence about arbitrators, and it also sounds a little bit like artificial intelligence, which we won't have uh, the, the scope of data you really need to do artificial intelligence, but we are doing something similar and in some definitions of, of artificial intelligence we are you know, doing something, yes, it has many different connotations, and the broadest connotation we might also be doing something kind of related to art artificial intelligence. It's a good name, don't get me wrong. I, I like it, I like it, I'm, yeah, so it's sorry, too late question. to turn back now. So the means to gather the information I think is where our big innovation is, is we have developed, uh, it took us over a year to develop, and we got a ton of input from experts uh, in the field, and we had public comments as well, and it was refined a lot over that period. 
is, and it's a questionnaire that has two phases, I'll explain that in a minute, but basically at the end of each case, what we want is in-house and outside counsel, and even third-party funders, and hopefully on both sides, uh, to fill out this questionnaire. Uh, the two phases, phase one basically extracts all the objective factual data. So, you know, what was the industry, what were the arbitral rules, what was the seat, what's the name of the arbitrator, it's very important that they're spelled correctly because basically the names are the dat are data and so you have to make sure that it's spelled correctly to, so we have, that's uh, built into our, our um, questionnaire. We ask how much was uh, granted, you know, if anything was granted, what was the currency, what was the interest rate, things like that. Um, phase one can be filled out by any junior attorney, by a, an intern, by even a paralegal. Uh, and at the end of phase one, they nominate people to take phase two. Phase two is more, uh, it has both objective questions and some evaluative questions, but it's based on the proceedings. And it's based on a lot of questions that parties uh, and counsel ask during the telephone calls we were just talking mm -hmm. about, right? So one of the big ones is, uh, you know, is this person, you know, was document production requested in the case? If so, was it granted? Uh, if it was granted, what was the standard that was used? And we use the IBA rules of evidence as the kind of baseline. And then we also have an evaluative question. You know, in your professional judgment, was this you know, the Goldilocks too much, too little, just about right? Um, but the idea is by having first objective questions and then an evaluative question, we can contextualize the evaluative question. And we also ask them, and this was part of our, our development of the questionnaire. I think it's uh, one of my favorite developments in question. We, we realized we would need to ask parties, to, or the responders, to self-identify. Did you win or lose? So we originally had this question, you know, did you win or did you lose? And someone uh, in the comment period, a brilliant attorney, I think, said to me, no self-respecting attorney is going to check a box saying we lost. Right. <laughs> so we came up with what I think is a very effective euphemism for winning and losing. We say, was the award more or less uh, favorable. Uh, favorable to what you or your client was expecting? Uh, and the importance for that is when you're analyzing the data, right, you can, you can filter um, and see if there's a marked difference in a particular evaluation or criteria uh, for winners or losers, you know, do they have a really different, and certainly, for example, if you see, you know, a particular arbitrator being evaluated uh, very strongly on a particular point by both, you know, a winning and losing party, you have much greater confidence, uh, and then again, if you, if you see a difference, you can kind of control for that as well in the data analytics, so. And how does the, how does all this, you have a report that you publish, and then how is the information presented to the reader who gets the report? So that's a good question. So right now we're still gathering data um, and through the questionnaire, uh, and you need a base of data before you can really start generating the reports. So we're working right now to develop the reports. We're in the production process. And the reports will, we're working with Kluwer because they have an arbitrator tool, and their tool will be how the reports are made available. So you'll go to this bio page, I've seen the prototypes, they're really nice. Uh, you'll go to this bio page that Kluwer is developing and, and our reports will somehow be, we've figured out exactly how it's accessible through that. Um, the reports will uh, provide, you know, sort of at the top, a little bit of biographical information, you know, maybe a picture of the arbitrator. We'll then provide sort of a dashboard about the uh, type of data we have, you know, how many reports do we have, how many, you know, pieces of feedback. Uh, and so, which institutions you know, were these set at, and what industries you know are the reports we have on, and things like that. So you can get a, a snapshot, not so much about the arbitrator, but about the information we have on this arbitrator. And then we'll do the analytics on the arbitrator's uh, case management and, and, and decisional history. 
Interesting. So. How do you account for confidentiality concerns in this? That seems like the obvious questions to me. Yeah, so, so I, I think this is the major innovation here, right? So um, we do not ask the names of the parties. Uh, you do have to, so we both protect the confidentiality of the information that would identify the case publicly, mainly the names of the parties. And we also protect the identity of the responder. So to respond uh, on our, to take the Arbitrator Intelligence Questionnaire, you have to go to our website, the arbitratorintelligence.org website, and you have to register on our website, at which point you are sent an email with a link to the questionnaire and a code that you have to put in to be able to get the, to, to be able to access the questionnaire on our secure website, uh, our, our secure server, which is through Penn State University. and. Uh, and you go there and fill out phase one. Uh, at the end of phase one, you'd be asked to nominate someone to take phase two or say, I want to take it myself. Uh, and then depending on what you do, either the person who's nominated gets sent an email with the link and a code, uh, or you just continue on taking phase two. Um, I have presented this to in-house counsel. They say, and I think this is, I do think this is exactly right. We were gratified to hear this. It doesn't, they don't think it includes any confidential information. Um, but there might be some cases that are sensitive and they don't want the AIQ filled out on that. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And so I think it's fair that a firm, you know, probably wants to check with their clients or at least have a general sense of what their clients' sensitivities on these things are. And if you're a junior person, you want to probably check with the senior partners at your firm before you go, not, you know, fill out phase one and nominate them. Um, but we hope that this will become so normal that it'll only be you know, a matter of sort of opting out occasionally uh, in the unusual case where there's a sensitivity. Um, also, it's important in response to your earlier question, we'll be generating these reports. So parties and counsel will not be able to go in and search our data, which is important both for data security and for, um, you know, and for, to protect our own data, which is, you know, you can go in uh, outside party. Once it's accessible, you can go in and sweep, the, you know, there's, you can just develop software to go in and sweep out all our data. Right. Um, so instead, we'll be generating reports, which is also important for quality control. Um, and to be, you know, in, certainly in the beginning, we'll be having to scrutinize, you know, each questionnaire response to make sure, you know, that it's, uh, meets certain criteria, and, you know, for reliability. Are, are parties going to be able to kind of apply this retroactively to go in in cases that they have had? And Good question. So we're actually working with a, a number of firms. I mean, discussions with a number of firms. So far, Wilmer Hale is the one that has committed uh, and is undertaking this right now, which is they are providing retroactive AIQs for the last two years. And they actually said they'd go back further. And I said, you know, I think people's memories are too attenuated right. after two years. And you know, for us, quality is more important than, than numbers. So, right. um, But what we'd like to do is get as many firms as possible to sign up to give us these two-year retroactive uh, case assessments. And in response, what we're doing is we're offering them two years of free reports when we start generating them. And then we're going to move to a more uh, membership-based model. So by giving us AIQs, you're sort of becoming you know, it's part of a membership package, and then you get a reduced, uh, dramatically reduced cost when you go to get the reports. And that's, again, Smart. to go back to economics, you know, it's, it's uh, the big problem we have is the free rider problem. Everybody wants the, the reports, everybody wants the data, right. um, but are they going to spend the time to, to, to give it? And uh, the, the way you solve the free rider problem is you just don't make their ride free. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so people who don't become members and don't want to give us AIQs can still buy our reports, um, but I'm thinking at least 10 or 20 times the cost uh, for the members. So. You know, maybe it's five hundred dollars in a report for one arbitrator, um, which is a fraction of what it would cost 
people to generate something similar by phone uh, in terms of the attorney hours, but they won't be able to generate what we have. I think we'll have unique information, but it'll be pretty pretty cheap cost. We're part of we want to be part of the solution on cost, not part of the problem. But if you don't give us the IQs, you know, ten or twenty times that, hmm. which I think is fair and reasonable. Um, right. And it's again just a an economics you know based response to an economic problem. So <laughs> too many questions <laughs> at once. <laughs> I was thinking that the, this insider knowledge that we put so much premium on and that you're trying to to get around it, it's located not only within law firms but I think also in arbitration institutions. They are really the powerhouses when it comes to yeah. having access to arbitrator information because they have so many cases more than law firms. Of course, are you also going through them somehow? So, um, so a couple couple of things. One, I think even the biggest firms, you know, Fulmer Hale is giving us, you know, these AIQs. You know, the big firms now recognize they don't have enough information. You never have enough information about arbitrators. You can always have more. Um, and uh, so, so the big firms actually, and the number, the other firms I'm talking to are also the big ones. Um, so I think there has been a real change in attitude in the firms. We don't. The questionnaire cannot be filled out either by arbitrators or arbitral institutions because we think it implicates confidentiality issues for both of them. Um, the uh, arbitrators keep asking us, can we fill it out? Because one of the obvious pieces of data we get is, you know, when was the case filed? When was the um, uh, final, you know, when were the final, when, when, when were the proceedings closed? We don't use the ICC definition, which can be a little subjective. It's a hard close of either the date of the last hearing or the date of the last submission after the hearing. So it's a hard close, and then of course, when was the award rendered? And so arbitrators, the ones we I hear the most about is arbitrators want to say, yes, but you know, I wasn't the reason it was so slow. It was this other arbitrator uh, who, <laughs> yeah, who, who took too long trying to write their dissent, or who you know disappeared for six months, and you know we couldn't even contact them. And, and those are fair objections. So, um, so we actually uh, we do ask a question in the questionnaire whether the parties know. Of any reasons why the award might be delayed, but most often they don't. Um, they can't. It's deliberation of the tribunals. So we haven't ruled out that we might come up with a future questionnaire about um, uh, that arbitrators can fill out with consent of both parties. Because sometimes both parties want to know some, you know, something that happened, and we think we could be a useful outside resource to facilitate that. Um, but well, and what about, sorry to jump in here before yeah, you even yeah. get to the final point, but what about arbitral secretaries, tribunal secretaries? Are we, they sort of, uh, they follow along with the, they with the arbitrators? They can't fill it out, but we ask questions about secretaries. And I think it's another example of one of the value-added things that the questionnaire will do. So, you know, there's a big debate about, you know, what to what extent, you know, can the secretaries be involved in the drafting of the award in different aspects? Favorite topic of the arbitration station. It is very favorite. It is favorite. But it's favorite for good reason because there's people feel very strongly about it. But interestingly enough, my sense is what people feel most strongly about is not one model or the other, but that they don't get told until the tribunal's been constituted, if at all. Okay? And so I think a lot of it's a transparency problem. And so if what we're doing is collecting data, which we do, we have a couple questions, was there a, a tribunal secretary or an assistant, okay? And then we ask, was it disclosed to the parties? And when was it disclosed? We don't evaluate the tribunal secretaries. Uh, we don't think that'd be fair. Um, but we ask those questions because we again, and I think that solves, so if you feel strongly that you don't want a tribunal secretary, you could look again at the data in our, uh, that we collect and say, oh, this person doesn't do that, or they ask before they, uh, and that's a you know a good thing. Um, and your your earlier question about the institutions. So one of the major ways we don't know when cases are happening, 
right? So we, we are approaching law firms for these retroactives and memberships so they give them on an ongoing basis. But to get systematic responses, which is critically important for us, um, we are partnering with arbitral institutions, collaborating. We have these co collaboration agreements. Uh, we've signed on now with SIAC and with uh, Amcham Quito. Uh, and I'm in discussions with, probably conservatively, about a dozen others. Um, maybe even, yeah, maybe it's probably more than 15 at this point. Uh, we haven't quite closed the deal in part because I've just been too busy. Uh, but uh, institutions are excited about this because what we're, the collaboration agreement does is they, at the end of each case, send out an email to the parties and counsel saying, will you fill out this questionnaire? Uh, and in exchange, when we have these reports ready, the institutions will get them for free. And they need information also, especially oh, yeah. the smaller ones, right? You know, they're trying now. There's this huge global competition among institutions. One of the things they're most evaluated on is how good is their appointment, you know, the quality of their appointments process. Uh, and we think this will help institutions be better at making appointments as well. Um, we also, especially for, we're seeing more and more regional institutions that are trying to compete with some of the big ones. Um, and the bar to entry is as high for institutions as it is for it, arbitrators, yeah, really. It is, it is. And again, it's an information asymmetry. The other thing we're doing, which is really, I think, great for institutions, we've just, we're just finalizing it now, is we have an emergency arbitrator questionnaire, which is like a mini version. Mm -hmm. um, and that's particularly helpful to institutions because when they, you know, they, depending on the rules, they have 24, 48 hours to appoint an emergency arbitrator. If the first three people you call say they have a conflict, you know, it's really hard to get that person in place or that they're not available, which, you know, given the, the parameters of emergency arbitration, that's not an infrequent problem. And so most institutions have their sort of go-to emergency arbitrators, but, you know, if the number of emergency arbitrations goes up, that's not going to work. So we think the emergency arbitrator questionnaire will help uh, globalize the pool of emergency arbitrators. So the AAA uh, can you you know kind of access information about emergency arbitrators who were successful uh, in SEAC arbitrations or in SCC arbitrations, uh, and we think that's a really valuable thing. And then the flip side of that is if you are a party and you get assigned an emergency arbitrator who you've never heard of, um, you know you need to be able to do research very quickly, quickly. on that person, right? Uh, to be able to understand how you can present and what you might be able to expect. And so we think it'll be both the regular reports on their performance in a full arbitration and then these uh, emergency arbitrator um, questionnaire answers will be very useful for that as well. I think what we talked about before we pressed the record button was <laughs> that this is now usually uh, an internal discussion that people have. You pick up the phone and you call the other partners. And another interesting nuance of this is that the users of your report or the readers of your report will also be the ones being evaluated in the report as well. So it's yeah. it's kind of like, so how do you, I mean, we you commented briefly on this before we started, but maybe you want to elaborate a little bit. How do you see this internal proprietary right to this Yeah, so, that, so we didn't quite finish that. Yeah, so first of all, I think uh, there will always be more to add through your personal relationships, right? So the, the, the major law firms aren't going to lose the ability to add value to their clients based on the connections they have and their ability to, and their internal databases that they've built, right? Um, because first of all, there won't be a 100% overlap. Right. Um, and it's a very different type of means of presenting the information that we will be doing. Uh, and it'll have its own limitations. It'll have some advantages, I think dramatic advantages, over telephone research and some limitations over telephone research. 
Um, so when we were developing the questionnaire, we tried to we set as our goal, how would you do develop through survey research the same kinds of information that are developed through telephone? But there's some you know. So one of the big differences when you call someone on the phone, you know who's on the other end, right? (laughs) But you won't, but but by definition, you will not know who the responders are in the questionnaire, which is important to protect anonymity. But uh, we did ask certain questions, and this was kind of tricky. So you could kind of have a sense of, you know, who's responding and how reliable they might be. So we don't ask personal identifying information, but for example, we say, uh, you know, we ask, you have a sense of how big the case was. We ask how big the team was working on the case. So you know if this is a 10-person team, and we ask the number of arbitrations of the most senior person on the team. So you know if it's a 10-person team for a particular case staff with someone who's you know participated in more than 300 arbitrations, uh, that's very different than you know a two-person team we, uh, that's participated in, you know, this is their third. Uh, right, you know, right. and we also ask, and you know, because we were thinking civil law, common law, because how you respond on certain questions might depend on your legal training. The problem is that distinction doesn't make so much sense anymore, right? I mean, you have lawyers who get their first degree in a common law country, they get an LLM in a civil law country, and then they practice in some third jurisdiction that's a mixed jurisdiction. So, how do you characterize them? And then. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, is, is the party from a civil or common law jurisdiction versus the law firm? And most big international law firms, they're, they have a very mixed team. You know, it's, it's no one or the other. So what we ask is, and I think this was a nice proxy, we ask what cities uh, their team is based out of. With the idea that, you know, if it's a two-person team based out of uh, Lisbon and it's their third arbitration that's very different than a 10-person team based out of London, Paris, and New York. Right. But you won't be able to identify necessarily, you know, who that uh, firm is or within, you know, the, you know who will be the actual responder. Um, so we have proxies for, you know, who is the responder, how did you get this information, but it'll still be different than a telephone call. Um, the other thing on a telephone call, you can ask uh, follow-up questions that are very particular to your case. So we tried to anticipate what we think a lot of those follow-up questions would be. But they're definitely things we can't drill down on, you know, uh, through a generalized questionnaire. So law firms will always be able to add something more. Um, there'll always be a proprietary element to some of this. But what we will do, and I think this is critically important for the legitimacy of the system, uh, especially as it's growing so exponentially, is we'll help create a level floor. It will never be a level ceiling. There'll always be, you know, more that uh, law firms can add, but there'll be a level floor so that everyone has a base chance of getting, you know, yeah, and being <clears throat> being sophistic, reasonably sophisticated and informed as they're picking their arbitrators. It's maybe as a wrapping wrapping up question, Catherine. This is so amazing, but it also seems like there's a lot of work involved. <laughs> who, who is doing this? You, you're obviously going around the world now trying, trying to, to promote and to get, yeah. to get as, many, uh, as much information as possible into the system. Do you have a, a team of dedicated researchers? Or is this a one-woman operation? Say, yeah, <laughs> I would love to say I have you know, 20, a staff of 20. So um, that is a good question. We are a nonprofit. Uh, I like to joke, I might be the only one who finds it funny, uh, that we operate on a shoestring budget, uh, but that sort of assumes we have shoes and string, um, <laughs> which we don't really. Um, so we've, we've received a grant from Penn State University. Um, we have some a little bit of income coming from Kluwer right now, because uh, we provide them for some things for their website. 
Uh, we've been applying for grants, uh, but a lot of it's a financial challenge or a limitation. Um, we have uh, we have me, I'm the primary person. Um, we have a, an amazing board of directors um, who are astounding. There, we have Chris Drahosel, uh, who everyone knows in international arbitration is one of the leading empiricists. Uh, and he's my absolute right hand. So when we travel to these different places, uh, he's always, uh, almost always with me. Um, and then uh, our board of directors, the rest of them are not really arbitration specialists, but they're data specialists. And one of them is an IST, uh, information, you know, computer genius. Uh, so we have these really great people on our board. They're more, you know, apart from Chris, they're generally more advisory and sort of product development kinds of things, uh, not the hands-on day-to-day. Uh, and then we have a board of advisors, that's amazing. Uh, which includes on it, not surprisingly, why Wilmer Hale's giving us uh, AIQs, <laughs> but Gary Bourne's on it, Gabrielle Kaufman Kohler, Albert Young Vandenberg. Uh, um, a few other minor Exactly, all the, the minor nobodies <laughs> in that. Juniors. But, yes, and, so, and it, it's a pretty eclectic board. So we also have um, Baba Tunde uh, from Nigeria. Uh, we have Mohammed Al-Wahab from Egypt. So it's, it's a pretty well-balanced board. Uh, we have a number of in-house counsel, including Michael Mack, Rath and Elizabeth Elahuri, who's now in-house counsel for a Mexican uh, energy company. We go to them for, you know, they're sort of a brain trust for us. Uh, this is all a long way of saying that I'm not just by myself. Right. Um, but what about the legwork? The, uh, the actual... Me. Oh, we also, I have to say, we just hired this wonderful uh, um, new director of media, uh, Giorgio Sansun. Sassin, excuse me, Sassin, uh, and he is going to be helping us with social media. Um, but so far, it's been, you know, a pretty. We are like the garage, uh, the equivalent of the garage startup in Silicon Valley, Have right? Have you seen this podcast? <laughs> yeah, okay. We're preaching to the choir. <laughs> okay, but see, people only hear you. Mm-hmm. I have to actually make something. <laughs> so, I wish we could only talk about what we're doing. Uh, you know, and we're grateful actually for the podcast to help get our the word out. Um, but but one of the things we find is that to get people engaged in the project, you, you do need to go individually. Uh, we do these pretty intensive presentations that take an hour, an hour and a half sometimes, where people can ask questions. Uh, I think in many ways this, this project is an, is an evolution, a natural evolution of, of where this, as the system gets more sophisticated, it just needs to regularize some of these you know, ad hoc procedures. It's one of those, why haven't we done this before yeah. already? I think thing, which is always the best I think ideas. in 10 years you're going to look back and go, oh my, how did it take us so long? On the other hand, it, it's also, and I think this is fair to say, it's also, you know, we've, we've been told, you know, if we can do what we're trying to do, we will be a disruptive innovation. You know, so we're both sort of a part of a natural evolution and, and a potential disruptor. And people, whenever there's going to be a potentially big change, they want to see where they're going to fall on it. Uh, and, they, and they have a lot of questions. So part of, we've been slow, but we think that's part of an intentional strategy to kind of um, commit to quality rather than speed. Hmm. We have some limitations because it is mostly me, not only me, but mostly me. Actually, the other resource we have, and this is something we haven't entirely harnessed, um, but it's an amazing groundswell of support. Every week I get an email from someone, usually a young practitioner, certainly under 30, oh, arbitrary intelligence is so great, what can I do to help? Um, and it's hard to, in some ways, uh, you know, even just to sign out things on an ad hoc basis to, to volunteers. But the level of volunteerism is tremendous. Now my answer is fill out an AIQ. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. but, um, but, but to the younger generations, this is intuitive. You know, the idea of feedback is completely intuitive to them. The idea that it's online um, is intuitive. The idea that you would 
engage in analytical research before you buy a, pur- a product or a, a service is intuitive to them. Um, and so, so we think, you know, I think the younger gen. And the other thing is they're trying to look at how they can build their future in international arbitration. And they see, you know, something that, democ- you know, information and technology is a great democratizer. And they see this, therefore, as something that will help their future. Uh, and they see it as solving, you know, I think we will also, we didn't talk about this yet, I think we will be a huge way, um, an organic market-based way to, if not completely solve, because it's a multifaceted problem, but make huge inroads on the diversity problem, right? Right. One, and the example I always give is imagine some brilliant young Brazilian woman arbitrator who's now sat in her first four cases, and she was fantastic. How many people around the world know that? What's the chance they're going to get a phone call? You know, because uh, you have to know her name before you can know to call about her. Right. And if only thirty people in the world have ever, you know, had an arbitration with her, you know, how do you know to call one of them? Right. Um, and again, I think phone calls are going to be, you know, are getting. They will always add something, um, but I don't think that they're they're going to be enough um, as the system grows and becomes more sophisticated. Um, so, and the other thing I say, because for a long time, along with the, we hope your project fails because this is the information we sell, the other thing that I had heard by some arbitrators, uh, I think it's fair to say some still uh, oppose the project, which is fine because we will ask uh, consent from the arbitrators before we publish an, uh, an, a report about them. They cannot consent. Uh, I'm fine with that. Um, but so some of the arbitrators, you know, were, were, were concerned about this, or they said, you know, you can't, you can't evaluate arbitrators because that's, you know, it's our reputations, that's how we make our money. It's like, you know, there's not a, a service or product in the world today that is not subject to feedback and evaluation. You know, countries get evaluated on their human rights records, on their credit worthiness. You know, the idea that international arbitrators are this unicorn that can't possibly be evaluated, uh, I think is laughable, right? But yeah, it really is. But because we've never talked about it that way, right? Um, and they are rarefied. Um, I think our, our questionnaire, we've worked very hard, because I have a lot of friends who are arbitrators and because we have a lot on our board, to make it a very arbitrator-friendly questionnaire. And so the primary means we protect arbitrators' interest in, in fair feedback is that I would estimate 80% of the questions are objective. You know, was interim relief granted? If so, what was the basis? Was there a jurisdictional challenge? If so, what was the nature of the challenge? What was the outcome? Those are factual questions right. that don't, you know, whatever the answer is doesn't impugn an arbitrator, and a client or a party might be looking for one answer in one case and the opposite in another. So our questionnaire, which we work very hard to be, um, to not inject any cultural values, to be culturally neutral, which was actually a lot harder than it seems, um, and also to um, work very hard to make sure the questions are fair to the arbitrators. So most of them are objective. We do have some that are, we would say are evaluative. We are not TripAdvisor uh, for <laughs> arbitrators. We do not do a ranking system. Um, we don't have a question on a scale of you know one to five. However, how many stars would you give this arbitrator? <laughs> um, we do have evaluative questions because we think that's important, and parties want to give that, actually. Um, but they're always framed in terms of your professional judgment. Um, we have a number of ways to, again, check the quality control, including if it's what I would call the disgruntled losing party. Um, you know, we, can, we will strain out. Uh, questionnaire responses we think are not reliable. Uh, we'll also have mechanisms for arbitrators to identify those you know, when they see the, the, the responses. Um, but overall, we think that you know, uh, good arbitrators have a lot more to gain from these evaluations than to lose, right? So we ask questions about their efficiency, 
Um, we ask questions. One of the, when, a nice example of uh, trying to be culturally neutral and how hard it is. Uh, so we had a question about um, the questions that arbitrators ask in the hearings. And we have a, a list of, you know, it says check all that apply. And we start kind of with the assumption of a good arbitrator. Uh, the, the questions, the arbitrator asks questions that demonstrated good knowledge of the record. Um, and then down to the last one being, uh, you know, the, our, the questions were unduly partisan or disrespectful of counsel, right? And then several different ones in between. We started by asking, uh, by having on there what we thought sounded pretty neutral. The arbitrator asked too many questions and the arbitrator asked too few questions. Mm. Um, but those are a very they're subjective, you know. Even though it sounds like you're asking for a number, right? It sounded kind of neutral. Uh, and then the other thing that was pointed out when we were vetting the questionnaire, someone said, you know, there are some cultures where the arbitrators just don't ask questions. Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some. Uh, it also might depend on the constitution of the tribunal. So right. you have one arbitrator that asks a lot of questions. Uh, and the other one then you know, doesn't end up having so the number of questions shouldn't be a criteria uh, but when we were getting there I mean some people have strong views about this so we were vetting it in Texas with some of these in-house um, counsel very sophisticated in-house counsel from major oil and energy companies and uh, we were at, we had at that time on the questionnaire too many too few uh, and then we had uh, no opinion as the last one and uh, one of the in-house counsels said, well, you know, when an arbitrator asks too few questions, I have an opinion, <laughs> and it's not a good one. So I don't think you should separate that from <laughs> not, you know, not enough questions and no opinion. So we did. And then a later iteration is when they told us, you know, the number of questions really is too um, subjective and, and not, not helpful. So again, we, we, we worked really hard, and we, and we think the questions end up being very fair to arbitrators. And the arbitrators who reviewed it uh, get on our advisory board, I think, also thought they were fair. Fantastic. I mean, okay. I could talk about this the rest of the day, <laughs> as I'm sure you could as well. Unfortunately if for I you, I really yeah. can. Unless you, unless you pull the plug, I will. That's the problem. It's just nice. I mean, this is the beauty of doing what we do, is to be able to sit with you one-on-one. I mean, you read articles about it, but to actually get to ask the questions yeah. that are burning in our mind, it's really, yeah. really great. And so it, is a, it is a project that has people have a lot of questions, so I'm actually yeah. really grateful for you uh, to... Is to there a good way to get in touch with you or the project if we have listeners who happen to be one of those yeah, juniors so, who want to be Yeah, go to our assistance. website, arbitratorintelligence.org. We have also on there um, FAQs, you know, frequently asked questions. Uh, I've done a bunch of um, clue arbitration posts. Yeah. And we have some publications that are also available on our website. But it is funny that I think people want, uh, nothing's going to replace this person-to-person interaction. It's probably why phone calls about arbitrators will never become completely obsolete. Um, but definitely contact me. You can find me through the website, uh, arbitratorintelligence.org, or the best email address is car 36 uh, car36 at PSU, is in Penn State University.edu. Perfect. Thank you so much, Catherine. Oh, thank you, too. It is happy fun time. Back to the basics, Joel. Let's me and you shoot the breeze on what business development is for law firms and institutions. Oh, I'm looking forward to this, finally. <laughs> you know, by the way, the, one of the biggest differences between Denmark, where I now live, and Sweden, where I used to live? Business development? <laughs> no. <laughs> Alcohol is socially accepted oh, like, yes. for lunch. Daytime. You drink beer when you drink coffee, much like in, I don't know, Spain or France, and much unlike Sweden. 
I was just thinking that since we're recording this at lunchtime, I'm in a country where it's completely acceptable to get a drink with your lunch, a glass of wine, and then go back to work, which is something that would normally have you executed in Sweden. That's true. They even have they have beer at our law firm, but you have to have non-alcoholic beer. Um, so people try. They try their best, but it's not allowed. Um, okay, so business oh, development. You... Um, you're a law firm, you're a budding law firm, or you're a new office of an existing law firm, you need to build up your practice. Um, what do you do? And that is a very, very broad brushstroke because a, a lot of people put a lot of things under the umbrella of business development. For example, do you think it is business development for someone to coach a moot court team at the local university? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with no. I mean, it could be. I mean, if the point of business, I mean, and this is what the whole problem is, is how do you define business development? I think you can define it as creating awareness for your law firm, getting yeah. clients, keeping existing clients, and maybe expanding your practice. But I guess we've brushed upon this before because there is an, an important difference here, I think, between arbitration business and other types of business uh, from a law firm's perspective in the sense that most arbitration lawyers get a pretty significant part of their business from other arbitration lawyers, right. whereas uh, like a corporate lawyer typically, of course, gets business directly from a corporate client. So I think you could make a case that it makes more sense for an arbitration lawyer to, for example, coach a moot team and participate in moot courts because that's like an established and recognized forum in which you meet other people in the business. And if you, you know, if you're a good coach or a good uh, mock arbitrator or whatever, that might lead to other business because you might meet or impress upon uh, people from other jurisdictions who might then refer cases to you when they need local expertise or when they are conflicted out and they remember, oh, yeah, yeah I remember this guy from, from Stockholm. He was good. Maybe we could use him. So in that sense, I guess, yes, okay, I'm changing my mind. I just convinced myself. Yes, <laughs> in the arbitration context, that is business development. Well, the thing is, and the thing that you had to do in your whole you know, brain development is that you had to make a couple of leaps, right? There's a couple of jumps to get there. So it's, you know, you coaching a team, the team does well at the competition, the competition or the, the team is now bearing the the logo of the law firm on the cards. People start seeing your law firm a bit more. They need someone uh, in that jurisdiction. They remember you from that experience and therefore you get the business. So I would I would call it business development, but maybe business development light. But don't you always make those leaps, though, in, in the more hardcore business development setting? It's still yeah, like if you, if you go pitch something. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And you always have to assume that this is sort of a, a first step in a pretty complicated, uh, like multi-step uh, transaction before you end up with something that you can actually build. But nevertheless, you have to keep doing it because it's it's also like showing that you are part of, of the community and you interact with peers. Which is the same thing, for example, with conferences. Why should we send associates or senior associates or partners to conferences? Well, the idea is that they should be networking and they should be kind of creating some sort of buzz about the firm or buzz about themselves. Yeah, not on the understanding that they will come back with like a signed client for a dispute, but rather this is a part of a long-term thing that you do. Yeah, and do you remember in Sydney, it was, I mean, it was business cards first, handshake later. Um, 
you just come back with a stack of business cards, which you inevitably either throw away or add them on LinkedIn and then throw away. Um, but that was the code of conduct over there. Was it? I don't really, I don't even think I brought any business <laughs> You cards. didn't bring any <laughs> business cards. <laughs> and that's the difference between doctoral candidates and associate. Okay, yeah, but I, I see your point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think this, once again, this is also where arbitration lawyers differ from other types of law firm business that we do this so much more. I, I'm imagining maybe you know more about this since you're within the firm. But if if I were, you know, an an M&A lawyer or a partner, I would be a, a little bit provoked by how much the average arbitration partner travels and just talks to colleagues. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't even know if that is something that you ultimately see uh, at the bottom line that it, it brings in business or if it's just a constant source of uh, irritation among the fellow partners working in other fields. Definitely. I mean, I think to maybe increase the stakes on when going to a conference and meeting peers could be valuable is if you were a speaker at a conference, because then you kind of have an established role at the conference and people are more willing to come up to you. Um, your logo is, you know, broadcast on the screen when you're giving your presentation, you declare some level of confidence in front of your peers, and then people will are more likely to come up and talk to you. And I'm talking about that from firsthand experience when I spoke for the first time at a conference and someone came up and said, well, you have a lot of business in Norway. I'm a nuclear energy producer. Uh, we do a lot of business in Norway. We were thinking we might have some business in Sweden. I would love to have your card in case anything happens. And that was that person would not even know who I was in the room if I didn't have some sort of role at the conference. Mm, right. So let me ask you this as a, as a counterpoint, because there is, of course, and that's sort of the premise why we're talking about this, uh, this, like, uh, how should I frame this in a, in a good way? The, the, there's a sense that it's somewhat, you know, ugly or wrong to be doing this too much and to be too active and out there with your like business interests. Uh, well, maybe that's a Swedish thing that you're supposed <laughs> to be, you know, working and the work should reflect how good you are, not how much you talk about your work to other people. But do you think there is um, for normal people who aren't arbitration superstars, is it possible to be completely checked out from all this types of, you know, barely have a web page and don't go to conferences and you don't really interact and like social settings, but all you do is just tremendous work behind the scenes. And that word of mouth will spread about your abilities based on what you do in, in hearings, even though you are not, you know, the person who who gets called to, to be on a panel. Is that possible even? Or is it such a reality for 99% of all arbitration lawyers that you also have to do all these other things? I think it would be devastating to say that it's totally impossible, but it would take twice as long and it would require a bit of luck because it's the nature of the beast that we work with that half of our half the things we work with are confidential they take over three years for a specific case so let's say you have an average of you know five cases that you're working on at, at a certain point you have you're basically putting in putting your great work in front of opposing counsel and three arbitrators in each of your cases that means 20 people over the period of three years will know that you're a superstar arbitration lawyer. Okay, and then if 
sorry, it's the motorcycle. <laughs> I just thought you, I just thought you were hungry. <laughs> Should I maybe close my window? Oh no, it seems there's a lot of motorcycle gangs in Copenhagen. I see uh, both Hells Angels and what's the other one? Not Barbados. Bandidos. Oh well, see, this like, is what drinking at lunch leads to, Joel. <laughs> motorcycle gangs. <laughs> uh, so what? Um, so yeah, so basically you're meeting in front of 20, 25 people over the period of three years that really know your work and can really vouch for your work. Whereas you speak at a conference, you give an amazing presentation that is well-researched, well-thought-out, and well-delivered. And you, in one day, put yourself in front of 125 people. Right. So, Fair point. I mean, I mean that that's the logic. I mean, that's the logic. Whether people... I mean, a lot of people don't work that way. And what you're saying is right. At some point, it's cultural. Um, there are certain cultures that you see at conferences giving out their business cards quite quickly. Um, and that's just a, the cultural, you know, resource of where they come from. It's it's the business card culture versus, you know, I'm just going to wait and sit in silence and you're going to see my work in due time, which is more of the Scandinavian approach. Exactly, exactly. Which also then, of course, happens to be my approach. <laughs> so you feel that way. And we've and we noticed that in Sydney are the differences in our approaches. But I also had a business to develop and you didn't. Well, yeah, this is a good topic for discussion, actually, because okay. I, I, I might beg to differ. I mean, I we've I have a podcast <laughs> right. I, in this sense. I I am not the the doctoral candidate that you would want to make me out to be. And many maybe some others are but and i i of course when we both met other doctoral candidates or junior academics who were in sydney and we it's a different kind of business naturally because you're already in in the typical scenario you're already employed by somebody and there's less of an incentive to, to try to develop your business but i mean you still see a lot of a lot of academics in this field interacting and trying to build a brand so that you have this sort of similar albeit different, of course, also uh, considerations when it comes to how to build your business, because the business is different. Right. And how do you as an academic build your business then? Well, then the same approaches here, the different approaches come in, I think, uh, you, you could either go to uh, all the conferences and, and to be frank, typically, and I think Ica was a good reflection of this, there's always one spot for an academic on every panel. Because all, even if it's a completely uh, law firm organized commercial context conference, they generally want to also get some sort of academic credibility. So uh, it's sort of the like the, you know the token woman on the panel, the token, token academic. academic. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is the the opportunity to do that. But then, of course, you have this very traditional, uh, at least in in Northern Europe sense that academics especially should let the work speak for itself and then be approached by practicing lawyers to be used as experts or consultants or to be cited in in submissions and decisions and awards right and that's that is i guess the the corollary ideal that you mentioned with the scandinavian business lawyers Right. And also the academics, all their stuff can be public. Um, so everyone can have access to it. So the more not, you not produce. Necessarily. I mean, this is this is really a parallel topic, but you have all this that like when you example, for example, when you're publishing articles, they are typically if, if it's a good journal, they are peer reviewed by right. an anonymous peer reviewer. And to be that anonymous peer reviewer is uh, something you would want to be as an academic because that signals that you are 
considered to be a peer with some authority in the field. But that is, of course, anonymous. That's the whole point. Right. So you can't necessarily take the credit for doing that type of work. So that is confidential. And of course, when you're acting as an expert on points of law, that is typically, uh, of course, governed by the same type of confidentiality concerns that that are otherwise applicable in, in arbitrations. But that's that's a side note. I want to ask you something else, and you, you might be able to explain this to me. Uh, you've so far been talking about business development as a way to grow externally, but I know there is something called knowledge management, which seems right. to be a big thing for for how law firms develop their knowledge base, I guess. And also, I see lawyers who don't work that much in practice, but whose like formal titles are something like KM manager or knowledge management specialist or something within arbitration groups. What is that? If you know, I've never heard that within an arbitration group. I've heard it within the firm. Um, but then again, maybe bigger firms have that within their arbitration. Yeah, practice. yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Um, I mean, I can I can assume what it would be by extension, and that would be that it it is someone who kind of manages the education of the and the education and resources of the team. So, for example, we have like an education. Um, mini group basically within our practice that makes sure is that everybody's up to date on recent events that have happened within you know within the community and within the field um, and that happens about once a month and you can have external speakers coming into the firm and just making sure that your team is at the forefront of the knowledge um, that is available for your specific field um, mm-hmm. but it also has to do with making sure that you have access to the right databases the you know the best databases um, the best books, um, making sure that you're purchasing the right books for your internal library, that could all fall under the knowledge management. Um, oh, basically, this is something that I could do. This sounds like an in-house academic, basically. Well, <laughs> in-house librarian. Teaching, <laughs> teaching researching, and researching. Okay, yeah. But that is 50% <laughs> of what academics do as well. Right. Well, yeah. I, I think you'd rather be analyzing stuff than you know, filing books and making sure that you... Or you could do it as a side gig. Yeah, exactly. Uh, definitely. I, you, you don't know this. I for a long time I wanted to be a librarian. I even like took the introductory <laughs> courses to be a librarian. Oh, <laughs> was this when you were young and you were like six years old? And they're like, "What do you want to be? An astronaut? A fireman?" You're like a librarian. Yeah, yeah. This, it, I'm a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable that you're making fun of this because that's exactly the way it was. I started working in a bookshop when I was like twelve, because because my grandmother used to work in a bookshop. Oh, that's sweet. And then I spent though. my youth basically in that bookshop from from when I was thirteen, I was getting paid, and then up until like last year of law school, I worked a few days a week, and still dreamt of being a librarian. You dreamt that's... of like the smell of a good old book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the beauty of organization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I still do. It's just that uh, it, it, I realized it wasn't a very attractive career development prospect, and you didn't get to travel that much. But uh, that's like what, what I do. <laughs> oh if, wait, if, wait, if wait. Get, that was the unattractive part that you can travel. It's not unattractive that no one would date you for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, no offense to anybody who's listening who's a librarian. We respect your work. Oh, this is once again, we differ, Brian Kotick. I think librarians might be the sexiest professional category that there is. <laughs> oh, Lord. That's because you don't speak above a 10 decibel volume level. You're just like loving, loving the silence. <clears throat> okay, so back to business development. No, are we, back to librarians. Are we that, that the, the exact opposite of what librarians do? No, I think that... 
I think the conclusion, and I think this is a personal conclusion, is that, um, and maybe this is the American in me, but I think it is pivotal for firms never to cease trying to be active in their business development. Not only not to be active, but to be borderline aggressive in their business development. And then, like you said, with knowledge management, it also occurs internally rather than external, or in parallel of the external forces as well. I think that it's imperative if you want your firm to grow. Um, If you have a new office in a new jurisdiction, then you need to be super aggressive. And you see some people that have moved firms, for example, and they almost go on like a little, um, what do they call it? The little train tours that the presidents used to do in like the 60s. Whistle stop. Uh, Whistle stop. Thank you. American reference by Swede. Um, But I mean, they kind of go on these tours, kind of be like, hey, look where I'm at. I'm still the amazing lawyer I'm at. I am. I was before. Um, but now at this new firm, you should now all move your business to the new firm. So I think everyone kind of has the inkling that this is that this exists and it's important. And obviously it bears fruit or people would stop doing it. Um, now, let me ask you then as a final question, since you said everyone. And oh. since it seems that many of our listeners are in like the junior slash mid junior senior segment of, of law firms, w- when should you start to care about this? Is it silly for a 24 year old recent hire to raise their hand and say, I want to go to these conferences and I want to be part of building our business because they first have to demonstrate that they are actually able to do the business? Or uh, is it something that you would encourage that people do early to show that they are sort of part of the community? Well, it's a two way street. I think some firms have policies about this. But my idea is that if you're a younger associate going to conferences, you're not necessarily there to develop business, but you're you're there to do the internal knowledge management section of the business development, right? So you're increasing mm. your own knowledge to make sure that you're, and you're still spreading the word of the firm because you're present, just like uh, a French, uh, sorry, a Swiss professor told me that, you know, he puts his name on lists of conferences and doesn't even go just so that he sees that he's present, that people see that he's present. It's kind of the similar thing for junior associates oh, because yeah. Yeah. you're not going to create the banter on legal issues that a senior lawyer or a partner will do and impress people and then develop drum up business that way. You're just going to be a, a body with, you know, spreading the word. and Right. Up, but up it's also, I mean, that, that kind of uh, professional banter is also a skill that you can only develop by watching other people do it and sort of be part of the greater discussion. So that's also another point for Definitely. people to, to go to these kinds of things and, and just interact or at least watch other people interact and then learn the ropes that way. Yes. And we can't lose sight of the fact that we, although we're part of a firm, we're all independent contractors at the end of the day. And we all have names that we're trying to cultivate as individuals um, because that is our strongest brand. And that is the brand that we're contributing to the firm as well. So that can never start too early. Um, So whether you're teaching a moot court or or coaching a moot court or visiting lecture at a university or, you know, whatever it may be, that can start day one. And I think that would be beneficial. Amen. Happy fun time out from business <laughs> business development, American and librarian Swede. <laughs> I'm going to go join a motorcycle gang now. <laughs> Good. We will be back next Tuesday. And uh, I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but I think we have no more material from Sydney. So next time... That's uh, it. It's, it's a traditional happy fun time uh, influenced 
normal arbitration station recorded probably from <laughs> Stockholm. I'm going to Stockholm pretty soon, so maybe yes. we will be in the same room to record finally once again. Pleasant on the ears. Exactly, and, and also on the eyes in my case because <laughs> I get to look at you. <laughs> and I get to look at librarian. <laughs> okay, on that note, I think we should just cut this out before it gets too complicated. Mm.